Welcome to Writer Types, covering crime fiction, mystery, thriller, cozy, you name it, and we got it. My name is Eric Beatner, and this, sitting next to me, is S.W. Loudon. Steve, very exciting. This is our all-cookbook episode. That's correct. Actually, cozy cookbooks. <laughs> that is a lie. Tell us who's really on the show, Steve. Today on the show, we asked best-selling author Laura Lippman if she had any advice to make this podcast better. I don't want to put anybody down, but it's not rocket science. And author Brett Battles responds to our hard-hitting interview style. What the hell is going on here? And we asked Sam Weeb how he celebrated when he found out he was going to be on Writer Types. We got drunk and watched uh, Matthew McConaughey legal thrillers. All that, plus a story from Holly West, a visit from our book reviewers, The Maumans, and a talk with some writers bringing crime into other genres. Brought to you this time by the Right Now Workshop and Conference, taking place in Phoenix, Arizona, on August 12th, put on by the Sisters in Crime Desert Sleuths chapter. We'll hear more about that later in the show, but first, Steve, you read any good books lately? You know, I actually got an advanced copy of Mike McCrary's latest book that's called Steady Trouble. If you're a fan of his previous books, like Genuinely Dangerous, I believe you read that one. Yeah, right? I've read a lot of Mike's stuff. It's good. Then you're going to love this new one. It has a lot of the same elements that made Genuinely Dangerous great, like sharp dialogue. There's plenty of crazy situations and more laugh out loud moments than any crime novel actually has the right to include. He's a wild writer when he lets go. Yeah. And, and this one really lets go. I think that people are going to really love it. How about you, Eric? You know, I've found quite by accident that this year I've been reading a lot of books from other countries. And just in the last month, I've read two books from Australia that were quite good. The Student by Ian Ryan, and then one called And Fire Came Down by Emma Viskich. I also read a book from France. I read a book from India, a short story collection from Germany, uh, and a novel from Japan by a writer named Kazuhiro Kiyuchi uh, called Shield of Straw that I really liked. And it really kind of reminded me it's good to stretch and get outside of your, your normal reading habits. And I think reading something from another country is a good way to do that. Well, yeah, I just recently bought the latest Harry Hole novel by Joe Nesbo. And uh, that's an author I really love, set in Oslo. He writes in Norwegian. And I've always really loved that other perspective on the genre. Well, later in the show, we'll actually be talking to an author from Canada. But first up, we go no farther than our own backyard, right here in Los Angeles, to talk with author Richard Lang. And his new novel, The Smack, is hot off the presses. And if it's anything like his previous novels, Angel Baby and This Wicked World, I know it's probably going to make one of my year-end top ten lists. Richard's an award-winning short story author, and this new novel takes place among the sordid world of grifters and desperate card players. We ask Richard what makes con men such appealing characters to write and read about. I've always been, since I was a kid, been fascinated with like the process of the, the cons. You know, I remember in a Paper Moon when they went in and they showed you actually how they did this short change scam. And I remember as a kid practicing that scam. And later in real life, I worked in a supermarket and people would try that scam all the time. But having seen Paper Moon, and I caught on to that really quickly. But I think people just like the idea of someone getting away with something, you know, getting over on 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 someone. Even though, I mean, it's inherently an evil thing that this guy's doing. He's basically ripping off old people. But part of my job as a writer is to take a guy like that who would be, in, a, in many cases, you would hate him because, you know, he would have ripped your grandparents off and sold them, you know, interests in a fake mine. And to make that guy somehow likable and uh, a character that you want to follow and get involved in, 
in his life and that you feel for him and you're actually experiencing the story through his viewpoint. So I guess the, the follow-up question to that would be, when you write about such nasty people, do you find yourself getting cynical about the human race? It's not, it's not the writing about the characters that turn me cynical about the human race. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm fairly cynical on a general level. If anything, for me, writing about these people makes me less cynical because I can actually have people do good things when in life, many times people don't opt to do the good things. These characters that I'm creating, even though they're bad guys, they're the heroes in the story and they're the ones making the good choices and doing the right thing in the end. I always like to start with someone who's not good and bring them more towards good. What in your background really gives you the knowledge of these sort of nefarious characters to, to, to be able to write them so well? Is there something uh, in your past that we, we need to know about? Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I grew up rough, you know, in working class. I sort of had a con man for a stepfather for a few years. He was nothing on the level of Rowan, but he was a dishonest sort of person. I've known people throughout my life who live on the edge, let's say, with one foot in one world and one foot in the other. Uh, I, I'm lucky in that I always wanted to be a, a writer. I was always looking at that life with a writer's eye, never as a, as a participant. Nonetheless, the, in this book in particular, the character of Rowan is sort of based on a, a guy I know. And then the actual machinations of the plot, which is uh, uh, some money stolen from Afghanistan by soldiers, that comes from an actual newspaper article in the LA Times. And I sort of merged the two to come up with uh, the smack. So it sounds like maybe uh, in your upbringing, you were kind of one left turn away from, from a criminal life. Is that right? <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, I, luckily I was, you know, I was always a nerd and I always had my mind in other things. I was saved by sort of my interest in comic books and, uh, you know, my Star Trek and all the, the little interests that I had. There weren't many other people like that. And I grew up in the Central Valley and a lot of rough guys who worked in the oil fields. And, you know, my stepdad was a welder and a lot of rough types. But when people did bad things, I was always at home, you know, watching TV. I was a real nerd. So well, look at that. Star Trek saved you from a life of crime. <laughs> <laughs> Are there any of your characters that you've written that you would actually want to spend time with and hang out with? Rowan would be pretty fun. And uh, Tina Fey seems like a, the, she's the uh, prostitute in the new book who Rowan hooks up with and uh, is kind of his partner in this scam that they're doing. And, but, you know, has a heart of gold, of course. And uh, I think she'd be pretty fun, too. There you go. Grifters and hookers. It's, there you uh, go. Like that's, that's the, you know, I, I like to dip my toe in, but I'm not going to fall in. <laughs> For our next guest, we travel up the West Coast, all the way to Canada. That's right, Sam Weeb is a native of Vancouver where he writes noir novels like Last of the Independents and his latest, Invisible Dead, the start of a new series featuring ex-cop Dave Wakeland. We're recording this interview the day after Canada Day. Uh, what did you do to celebrate? We got drunk and watched uh, Matthew McConaughey legal thrillers. I thought he was going to say hockey. We watched hockey, but no. No, nah, I'm not much of a hockey fan. <laughs> what? what? I'm I'm sorry. You're blowing my mind. <laughs> Is Matthew McConaughey secretly Canadian? No, I just, uh, my girlfriend had never seen The Lincoln Lawyer, so we watched that. And then 
we watched a time to kill because I don't know. It was just a theme. I mean, I don't really celebrate that. You know, it's kind of one of those weird holidays, like unless you're really into like fireworks and stuff, it's not that fun. Fourth of July is coming up for us down here and it it is mandatory. If you don't wave a flag and blow something up, you're considered a communist. Yeah. Well, patriotism is just not quite as, it's not the same as in America. You know, how does your nationality influence your writing? I don't know. I mean, I, you know, Vancouver's just like, I, I think of it more as being more closely aligned to like Seattle and Portland and, and California than, you know, Toronto and like back East. I feel more comfortable thinking of myself as just sort of a West coast writer. I, for one, I, I've been to Vancouver. You've, you've been to Vancouver. Right? Love Steve? that city. Yeah. I, I, I didn't find it a particularly dark and noirish kind of place. What makes the city of Vancouver right for your particular brand of noir? I think the fact that it doesn't seem quite as dark is actually, you know, one of the interesting things about it. It has this very tourist friendly image, you know, with the mountains and everything, but it's home to the poorest postal code in Canada. Um, it's been the site of several serial killers who target low income women. Uh, so there's been, you know, many disappearances and things like that. It's also the site of the first legal uh, supervised drug injection site in North America. So it's got this sort of um, dark underbelly that people don't see. So the stuff that doesn't end up on the postcards is what you're writing about. I, I think so. Yeah. yeah. That's the fun stuff. That's the fun stuff. <laughs> the back of the postcard. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> right. So Invisible Dead is the start of a series featuring Wakeland. Uh, why did he capture you enough to want to write a number of books about him? You know, the, the character came out of, I guess, my love for like the old school hard-boiled detective novels, you know, Ross MacDonald and John Johnny MacDonald. But I wanted to sort of find a way to update them, you know, rather than having someone wearing a trench coat and a fedora and calling women dames and stuff in like 2017. I, I wanted to go back to what I really liked about those books, which is they're about small business people making really tough ethical decisions when you add in crime to that i I think that that's what's really interesting about like the private detective novel and the you know the police procedural is like this is their job right this is what they do for money and they also have to live with the consequences that's really where wakeland came in is just sort of that literary influence of the detective and then also trying to find a way to speak to what's going on today you know hopefully by speaking to this city, it sort of speaks to what's going on everywhere. But So it sounds like you kind of set out to update the PI novel to some degree based on your own love of the genre. Is, is that a tough mantle to carry? Is that a, sort of a tough crown to wear? I would love to have that mantle. You know, if I could, <laughs> the man who's going to save the PI novel. <laughs> yeah. But, um, you know, I mean, I, you know, it's one of those things where every couple of years there's like an article like, oh, the PI novel's dead. I think everyone past Hammett and Chandler kind of gets overlooked. So we think of this like golden age and then nothing, but like there's amazing novels being written all the time. So what's, uh, what's next for Wakeland after Invisible Dead? You said you've got one more or you said two more already in the can. Is that right? The second book is called Cut You Down and that's going to come out uh, in February. I really wanted to look at like the femme fatale character. So there's a lot of characters that sort of, riff on that in that book and then the third one i'm just got to my agent uh, a couple weeks ago so hopefully that'll be out after that but uh, yeah I, I really enjoy writing the series i hope to just continue doing that 
Well, so far, The Smack by Richard Lang and Invisible Dead by Sam Weeb are two more on top of my to-be-read pile, but, you know, we're gluttons for punishment, Steve. What do you say we get some more recommendations? And that means it's time to check in with our resident reviewers, Dan and Kate Malman. Each episode, we borrow the Malmans from Crime Spree magazine, where they review novels and comics. Welcome back, Kate and Dan. What do you have for us this month? So I'm reading Afterlife by Marcus Seiki. It was brought to me, thankfully, by Eric's sister, Gretchen. She picked up a copy, an advanced copy at Printer's Row. The book comes out July 18th. And it's there's an FBI task force in Chicago that is trying to track down this killer who's killed about 17 people in a couple days and it just has the city totally on lockdown. So FBI agent Will Brody and the task force head uh, Claire McCoy are doing their best to track down this killer. And in the process, they fall in love. However, unfortunately, both of them end up falling victim to the killer and end up in the afterlife. Hence the title. Uh-huh. Uh, they wake up and there are abandoned cars, there are no airplanes, but there are people and they're all brandishing weapons. And they find out that the residents of the afterlife are actually fighting, or they're doing battle for their, their souls. They're trying to prevent these roaming mobs of people from eating their soul, basically. What I really am enjoying is that Seiki does a really good job establishing the rules for the afterlife quickly and concisely, and they're easy to follow. Basically, the afterlife is an echo of the world of the living. Like when you do alternate realities like this, if you set up the rules and they're very easy to follow, I'm engaged right away. So I'm looking forward to finish seeing how it ends. From where Marcus started, he's really stretching and going with these big world building adventures. It's, it's oh, pretty yeah. interesting to see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dan, what do you got for us? So the current Batman writing team of, uh, of Tom King He's been on the scene for just a couple of years now. He's an ex-CIA agent, and now he's one of the biggest stars on the scene. So what's going on right now is kind of a, a gimmicky piece. Um, DC is doing single-issue one-offs of uh, DC characters mashed up with Looney Tunes characters. And the piece that I just that we're talking about today is the Batman-Elmer Fudd crossover. Well, okay, so hold on a second right there. Yeah. Because- <laughs> That's exactly the response I was looking for. In, in my head... You are a cross between Elmer Fudd and Batman. <laughs> no, 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 no. Dan rejects this theory. <laughs> I, I wasn't asking for your opinion of my assessment. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's completely inaccurate. He's also not a millionaire. Exactly. Yeah, I, I, I'm not a Bruce Wayne or an Elmer no. Fudd. All right, so Batman Elmer Fudd is written by Tom King uh, with rich uh, pencil noir drawings by uh, veteran artist Lee Weeks. Fudd is narrating the story. So it's written with the lisps, but it, the dialogue itself is as hard-boiled as anything else that you'll find. So the title of the story is actually called Pway For Me. Wow. Yeah. The, uh, fun- now, are, these, are these meant to be taken seriously, though, or are these sort of like goofy? That's a great question. The, a lot of the other one-shots have been very light, very silly. But this one, King bites into it, and he wants to make a legit rain-soaked noir story about Elmer Fudd coming to Gotham, searching for the killer of his girlfriend. No, wait, the- is, but is it really his girlfriend or is it just Bugs Bunny in a dress? Oh. <laughs> and I'm not at all a comic book guy, but I'm actually pretty convinced by your review about Batman and Elmer Fudd, and I might actually check it out. It's a mind blower, and I will guarantee it's up for awards at the end of the year. 
So, Dan, if you don't think that you're very Elmer Fudd-like, what uh, Looney Tunes character would you... Actually, I should be asking Kate. Kate, what <laughs> what Looney Tunes character is Dan more reminiscent of? It's 100% Tweety yeah. Bird. <laughs> wow, I think you might oh, have nailed no. it. Yeah. No. Yeah. Wiley Coyote. Oh, oh with the world is dropping <laughs> anvils on my head. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> You are listening to Writer Types. I'm Eric Beatner, And I'm Steve Loudon. Our episode is brought to you this time by the Right Now Conference. That's W-R-I-T-E now. I see what they did there. You know, this one-day workshop and conference takes place in Phoenix and is put on by the local chapter of Sisters in Crime. And here to tell us more is Denise Ganley, Vice President and Right Now Committee Chair for the Sisters in Crime Desert Sleuths Chapter. <laughs> to up your game as an author, the Right Now Annual Conference offers a budget-friendly, full day of learning from high-caliber authors and publishing professionals. We're ecstatic to announce our special guest for 2017, the Grand Master of Adventure himself, Clive Cussler. And we have best-selling and award-winning authors Lee Goldberg and Robin Bursell. Plus, hear cutting-edge tips from publicity guru Dana Kay of Kay Publicity. And you can sign up for one-on-one time with developmental editor Holly Lawrence of Lawrence Literary Services and literary agent Jill Mar of the Sandra Dykstra Literary Agency. Hosted by Sisters in Crime Desert Sleuths Chapter every August, previous guests at Right Now have included megastars Sarah Paretsky, Greg Hurwitz, Simon Wood, Hilary Davidson, Hank Philippi Ryan, Alex Kava, and Katrina McPherson. The Right Now 2017 conference will take place on Saturday, August 12th in Phoenix, Arizona. Go to DesertSleuths.com to register. That's D-E-S-E-R-T-S-L-E-U-T-H-S.com. And if you're listening to this after August 2017, don't worry. Every year, we host the Right Now Conference with experts on writing, publishing, and publicity. So sign up for our spam-free mailing list so you can find out the details about our next conference or writing event at DesertSleuths.com. Well, that sounds like fun, and if you're in the area, you should definitely check it out, you know, because if you're going to be in Phoenix in August, you definitely want to be indoors, so why not attend a great writing conference? Next up is author Brett Battles, best-selling author of the Jonathan Quinn novels, the Project Eden thrillers, the new series The XComs, and many, many more. Brett is celebrating nine years of writing full-time, and we started by asking him what plans he has for his 10-year anniversary. I haven't thought about it yet, but I would think that there'll be something in 2018 around September I'll be doing. Figure something out. Have the big blowout and... uh... Right. Blowout, spend all the money, and then have to go back to work. Exactly. (laughs) At a real job. Now, Brett, you have so many series going at once. You've got thrillers. You've got some sci-fi stuff. You've got mixes of the two. Do you like to switch to something new when you finish one style? Uh, Does that keep you energized? When I can, absolutely. It's great because it just keeps my mind really fresh. And when I come back to like Quinn, which is my big thriller or something like that, I don't feel like I've just been constantly working on that. But I would say that even in my sci-fi, those are also thrillers. So it's, it's, they're all thrillers. It's just where they fall into the specific genre type. Are you someone who doesn't like being labeled in genres? Are you trying to sort of break free from uh, being labeled a certain type of writer? Hmm, that's a great question. I, I don't want to necessarily be labeled exclusively one type of writer. You know, if, if the mood hits me and I want to write just a straight drama story, I, I want to be able to do that too. I mean, it, it's hard not to be pigeonholed, but as much as I can, I'd like to not be completely pigeonholed. 
It seems like too that because you self-published, that gives you the freedom to kind of jump around like that and sort of follow your muse. You and I have spoken at length about your enthusiasm for self-publishing, but in your eyes, what are the pros and cons to self-publishing? There are a lot. Is that you really have to stay on top of it. You need to find what works for you, and not everybody's going to succeed right away or even ever. You know, the the most important thing is still to write that best book that you can. For me, what's really worked is, um, you know, I put out three or four books a year. You know, that's my normal writing pace. And when I was with Random House in the past, they'd only want one book a year. So I had a lot of downtime that I now wish I had used (laughs) just to stockpile stuff back then. But it also does, as you say, it allows me to experiment into various different directions. So that's a pro, definitely. But the cons is now, you know, you got to keep up with all the new trends and how to keep your audiences growing. Or I'm now starting to get a little bit more into the marketing. And, you know, I'd rather really not do that stuff. I'd just rather just write. I, you know, I wish I had somebody who'd do that for me. <laughs> but unfortunately, there is no one yet. Although I could train one of my kids someday to do that, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) You you really have to be a one-man business, I guess. You do. You do. I mean, well, you're a publishing house is what it comes down to. Well, so then would you say if somebody is looking to break into self-publishing that it's not really for the faint of heart? First of all, Steve, are, are, are you in the voice change thing going on right now? It sounded like uh, you're having the, <laughs> the change of life. Your voice kind of cracked there. Yeah, I, it's it's not the early change. It's the latter change that I'm worried oh, about. Fair enough. Fair it's, enough. Okay. It's, <laughs> it's not, not puberty. It's menopause. Yes. Oh, all right. <laughs> I was a little confused. I was a little confused. Uh, I'm sorry. What was the question again? <laughs> you know, I don't even know anymore, but this is comedy gold. So we're just going to go with that. <laughs> uh, I, was, I was asking if you think that self-publishing is for the faint of heart. Oh, uh, absolutely not. I mean, there are times when I'm sitting there going, what the hell is going on here? And uh, you just got to keep working at it, working at it, working at it. And it's, you know, it's up and down. I've had some really great years and then I've had some years that haven't been so great, you know. So I, I'm going up and down all the time. I'm in the process of trying to get it to go back up again. Yeah, speaking about life changes, getting it up again, is, is seems to be an important one. Yeah, that's, yeah. Yes, well. I think, I think we're, we're all at that stage. Don't they have a pill for that? I, <laughs> they got a pill for everything, Brett. I sure as hell hope so. <laughs> So one of the new uh, ways that you're trying to to maybe capture a younger audience is with the XComs. Is that this? I, I'm fascinated with this idea of spinning off something out of the world of Quinn with this, this right. young team. Is is that sort of consciously trying to reach out for a slightly younger audience, or is it just an idea that struck you? I did not consciously do it based on the age of audience. And in fact, I didn't even think about that until you just said it. I just like the idea. I, I had this great character in a show up in one of the Quinn books two or three back, and I wanted to do more with her. And then I thought, well, I'm going to create this team that all of a sudden get excommunicated from the business. And then these, this weird organization pulls them together that they don't really understand the organization, but they're going to send them out on these interesting missions and stuff like that. And so I thought, that's going to be fun. It's a lot of fun. I'm actually working on the X, uh, next XCOMs um, right now. I wouldn't say as we speak, but I'm actually talking to you guys. So Yeah. 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 Well, because you, you get up really early in the morning to write, right? I mean, we record this around noontime right now, and you're, you're basically done for the day, right? The question <laughs> is, what the hell's wrong with you that you get up that early and write <laughs> like that? 
you know, now I think again, we, we were talking about age before it's that whole waking up early because you're old kind of thing. I it's just set in a little bit early for me. Um, I have made a habit of getting up around 4am every day. I have been trying to change that a little bit. Uh, not quite so successfully as in today I was up at two. So, I mean, that's the beauty of working a uh, full time is I can have these weird schedules that play to my strengths. And my, one of my strengths is I write really good early. And then you, you're free at 4 p.m. to hit the blue plate special at Denny's. Oh, oh, easily, easily, <laughs> yeah. absolutely. I don't know, Eric, when's the last time you got up at two o'clock in the morning? Uh, usually when I see two o'clock in the morning, it's from the other side. Like I'm just, I'm just thinking about going to bed. I could never in a million years wake up at two and start writing. Right, and then go back to sleep. I can always go back to sleep. That's not a problem. I might go back to sleep right now. <laughs> you, you look like you could use a nap. Yeah, I could. I didn't, I didn't want to say anything. Yeah, we're back to the ageist. <laughs> we are. We are at the age when a nap, a nap would feel good. Do you, do you remember a time in your life when you didn't want to take a nap? I regret I, all those years. I am not a napper. Really? I really am not. Oh, we're so different, you and I. That's why I look so tired. <laughs> Brett Keeps editor Elise Din McCrillis very busy with new titles, so we thought she was a perfect guest for our Six Shots segment, where we asked six questions to an industry professional. In addition to Brett's novels, Elise has edited work by Joe Eday, Laura Benedict, Richard Bard, and more. Her reputation is stellar, and there's a reason that they call her the Edit Ninja. The role of an editor is to help authors write the best books that they can. And sometimes this includes pointing out structural and character issues. It means fixing all mistakes. Sometimes it includes being a sort of therapist to have them dig deeper, to get to the root or the real reason they're writing a scene. They may not even realize why they're writing a story until you nudge them a little bit. It could also involve being a writing coach where I'll get on the phone and I'll talk them through writer's block or just working through a scene to see if it works. I rarely suggest huge changes during a copy edit. I will do it during a developmental edit because that's when we focus on the big picture. I will also suggest big changes with authors who like to submit their detailed outlines to me. Sometimes I'll look at an outline and I will make huge changes and say the entire ending doesn't work. Um, I've suggested changing from writing in present tense to past tense, changing the POV, things like that. But that usually happens during a much earlier process than the copy edit. The clients I work with are great. None of them are resistant to changes. Some of them even tell me they love getting notes, which I love, <laughs> you know, like, wow, you love them? Are you sure? They're like, yeah, we can't wait. We sit there and then the email comes in and they go, yay. That to me shows experience because they know that I'm on the same team as they are. My intention is simply to make the book better. It's not a good idea for authors to edit their own books because they're too close to the story. They've lived with these ideas for so long. They think that everything makes sense because everything came from their own heads. However, sometimes their ideas don't translate onto the page as well as they think they do. And that's when an outside perspective is helpful to improve the story. It's not a must 
that you hire an editor who has had a lot of experience in the genre you're writing in. However, I do think that it's important to recognize that one style of editing does not fit all genres. For example, a thriller would work well with a lot of clipped short sentences, especially during a climax, you know, if something suspenseful is happening. But if you're writing a book on transcendental meditation, you might want longer sentences. And since we just had Brett on the show as a guest, we figured we'd let him have a question or two that he's always wanted to ask his own editor. Brett, take it away. So what can an author do to make the experience of working with an editor go smoothly and be more beneficial for them? They have to trust each other, that they're on the same team. They can't perceive the editor as someone who's trying to impose some kind of personal agenda or just want to change things for no good reason. But yeah, I think mutual respect is important and being open to notes instead of just thinking, you know what, that change sounds crazy. Communication, asking questions, you know, why did you suggest this? And they might find that the editor has a really good reason. Okay, what I really want to know is why do you think Han Solo is such an overrated character? I can't answer that question because I don't think he is an overrated character. I think he's the greatest space rapscallion of all time. So, you know, there can never be too much Han Solo. Had Brett not seen my collection of Han Solo paraphernalia? <laughs> he's asking the wrong question. <laughs> and that's my answer. Well, it's time for a short story, and this time we raid the archives of Shotgun Honey for a tasty treat from our pal Holly West. ShotgunHoney.com is overflowing with great crime stories in under 700 words. Here's Holly West with her short story, The Corn Nut Caper. Oh my God, there's a tooth in my corn nuts, Casey said. I glanced at the contents of her cupped palm. It's not a tooth, dipshit. It's a goddamn tooth, Ray. Take a closer look. I poked at the kernels. They're corn nuts, Casey. They all kind of look like. I held one up and examined it. Damned if it wasn't a motherfucking tooth. I told you, she said with satisfaction. Maybe you'd better not eat those until we find out how this got in there. I've already eaten half the bag. We should call the police or something. Casey laughed. How are you going to call the snack police? I wasn't thinking so clearly. We'd been tweaking hard for the last 24 hours. Plus, I was hungry. Took me up with some of those. She poured a pile into my hand and I tossed them into my mouth. The salty goodness helped to clear my mind. I sat down on the cinder block fence and inspected the tooth. Looks like a carnivore. Casey scrunched her face up, confused. A cadaver? No dipshit, a carnivore tooth. The ones that help you tear meat off the bones. Canines, that's what they're called. You think it's a dog's tooth? No, it was way too complicated to explain. Casey put her head on my shoulder looking up at me with her pretty blue eyes. What's wrong, Ray? I really need to figure out how this tooth got in your corn nuts, babe. It's like my new mission in life. She shrugged her shoulders. Okay, let's think about it. Do we know any toothless people? Johnny's missing a tooth. Yeah, but I don't think it's a cadaver. Canine. Canine, she repeated. You're right about Johnny, though. He'd been missing that tooth since I met him five years ago. Seemed unlikely it would have made its way into Casey's corn nuts now. I put my hand on her knee. There was blood on my knuckles. Holy shit, the fuck happened to my hand? Let me see. She pressed the wound. Does that hurt? I pulled my hand back. Hell yes, it hurts. Why'd you do that? 
I'm sorry, Ray. I wanted to see if it was broken. I used to be a nurse. I know about these things. I feel sorry for your patience, then. Casey crossed her arms in front of her, pouting. What's got you all bent out of shape? You didn't have to say that, Ray. What'd I say? You said you felt sorry for my patience. I'm a good nurse and you know it. That was how we met. I'd cut my finger on a jigsaw and she was the ER nurse who treated me. But that was a long time ago. I couldn't remember if she was a good nurse or not. Say it. Say what? Say I'm a good nurse, goddammit. If you were a good nurse, you'd have a job. And if you were a man, you'd have a job. That was taking shit too far. I got up in her face, raising my hand to hit her. That's when I got a good look at her mouth. Her lip was all plumped up and bloody. The fuck happened to you? Casey started crying. You're so mean. I'm gonna leave you, Ray. I swear I am. Christ, girl, settle down. Smile at me. I ain't gonna smile at you, asshole. I laughed, pointing at her. You dipshit, that was your own tooth you found in the corn nuts. No fucking way. Open your mouth. No. Open it, Casey. I just want to check. She clamped her mouth shut. Goddamned women. Why'd they always have to make things difficult? I lunged toward her and tried to force her mouth open, but she kicked me, grazing my balls. I doubled over, cupping my crotch. God damn it, Casey, I said, struggling to find her tooth on the ground in front of me. I got your tooth right here. But Casey had run off, and I realized all I had was a corn nut in my hand. For more crime stories in under 700 words, visit Shotgun Honey and browse the archives and tune in each episode here for a new tale. And Steve, I gotta ask, what is a corn nut anyway? <laughs> it's a tasty treat that can be served up in just salty fashion, barbecue fashion, or cool ranch. You're, I feel like you're skirting the actual... What, what's inside the corn? Is it corn? Is it a nut? I believe it's a uh, nutty piece of corn. Gotcha. Okay. <laughs> Mystery solved. Well, Steve, it's time for our unpanel, where we get three writers together and ask them all the same question. Earlier in the show, we talked to Brett Battles, who writes thrillers and sci-fi, and often blends the two. For this episode's unpanel, we thought it would be interesting to speak with some other writers who've taken their crime writing into other genres. This time around, we have Maria Alexander, Kieran Shea, and Nick Corpon telling us how they approach their cross-genre novels. This is Nick Corpon calling from Baltimore. I'm the author of the Memory Thief trilogy, including The Rebellion's Last Traitor, which just came out on Angry Robot Books, and Queen of the Struggle. Uh, I've always thought of myself as a crime writer until I started writing sci-fi novels, and now I don't really know what I am. Uh, but even though my recent books are set in outer space or in foreign lands 400 years in the future, there's still a heavy crime influence, whether it's you know, thieves or cartels or heists gone wrong. It's just part of my story DNA. But I think that writing across genres has really been fun for me as a writer. Um, it's opened up some part of my brain that probably formed as a teenager watching X-Files on Friday nights. And by setting stories in outer space or whatever, I'm really only bound by the craziest shit that I can think of. Hi, I'm Maria Alexander. I live in Los Angeles, and I'm the author of the award-winning books Mr. Wicker and Snowed. Since I was a child, I've always loved both mysteries and monsters, and some of my favorite stories have both. One of the first was a movie I saw as a kid called The Wicker Man. It was a thriller, a police procedural, and absolutely a horror film. I've been writing cross-genre stories like this for years, although until recently, the crimes weren't as central to the plot. Nowadays, I have my monsters, both human and otherwise, 
committing crimes that my young protagonists solve. It's so much more compelling when the protagonist is a teenager, I think. They're so inexperienced and vulnerable. Hi, this is Karen Shea from Annapolis, Maryland. I'm the author of the Coco Mortsteller series. My new book came out this past April. And it's called Off Rock. It's a science fiction slash crime novel. A while back, mystery writer Randy White gave me a piece of advice. Namely, never forget the people you create are human. That their believability is in properly seasoned details. Randy was complimenting me on a story I wrote that had two sheetrock hangers mumbling about a third guy's busted leg. And the discussion took place in a bar, and it had nothing to do with the story, but it lent atmosphere to the setting at that point. He knew immediately that this was taking place, not just in any bar, but a working class bar. And I never forgot that. Well, this episode has been jam-packed, but it's time for our final guest. Laura Lippman now joins the list of authors that we are amazed gave us their time without first, you know, kidnapping their dog or something. Laura is the multiple award-winning author of the Tess Monahan novels, as well as many standalones, including her most recent, Wild Lake. With 20 years publishing novels, Laura is a seasoned veteran who still seems to get better with each new novel. So I saw that you had posted that you had just recently finished a book and you were commenting that you actually liked it when you read it out loud. Is that something you do? You actually read a book out loud to yourself? I read my books out loud twice. Once during the copy edit and once during proofing galleys. It's a superior way to catch continuity errors and it really helps you fine tune the language you hear stuff out loud, but it's really more about the improvement in accuracy, which I'm kind of fiendish about, but I don't think I've managed to publish a book yet that didn't have a mistake in it, you know, which kills me. And are you doing accents and voices and characters and everything, or just you're strictly reading for (laughs) something? I do tend to get kind of expressive when I get into certain character situations, certain dialogue, but no, I don't change my voice. I'm not trying to put on deep male voices for the... (laughs) I'm not doing any accents. You're not auditioning for your own audiobooks. Oh, God, no. <laughs> Speaking of your approach to writing, you got your start in journalism. How has that affected the way that you write fiction? One of the good things about having been a journalist is it really demystifies writing for you. You're used to writing and you don't feel like it. You're used to writing to deadline. Journalism gives you sort of like that idea of, I got to show up, I got to write. It's not rocket science. It helps because you're not fretting about it not being perfect. You've kind of let go of perfect. Perfectionism is a really interesting way to turn procrastination into something positive. In other words, oh, I'm not finishing because I can't finish. I'm not finishing because it's not perfect yet. As a former journalist, how do you feel about novels that are quote unquote ripped from the headlines? Ripped from the headlines to me is something that most novelists can't do because we can't work fast enough. We can't. I mean, I look to real stories all the time for my books, but I like to think that I completely reinvent them. And by the way, if I'm working from a real story on one of my books, I do as little research as possible about it. I don't want to know anything about it. I want it to be mine now. This sounds kind of sociopathic, 
But if you are going to write stories inspired by real life, you really have to sort of put the real life people out of it. Well, that's, and that's where the, the fiction writer in you takes over. And, and like you say, you, you have to own the story and make it yours. Yeah, I, you know, the fiction writer in me pretty much has taken over. I just don't even want to write nonfiction anymore. It's too hard. It involves things like going to the state archives. <laughs> too much. I don't want to do it. It's harder. It's a lot harder. Now, you've, you've taken a break off and on from your uh, Tess Monahan character. When you do something, like, what is your relationship to, the, to your characters? Like, is it easy to, to leave them behind when you're finished with the book or even to set aside a serious character like Tess? It's very hard to set Tess aside. And Tess and I, uh, just the very fact that I just began to start a sentence, Tess and I, is if she's a living person. <laughs> I would say, at least with Tess, I know she might come back. There are certain standalones where the characters are done, and I do miss them. I already miss the character in the novel I just finished, which won't be out until February, and it's called Sunburn. And there's no way she would ever be in a book or a short story, but one of my favorite characters ever to write about. And so that's just the deal with writing standalones. You have to say goodbye to these characters. You sound like someone who, like, you're obviously you've put a lot of thought into the stuff that goes into your own books. Are you someone who likes to talk about books and, and really dig deep into the books that you're reading and books that you're sharing? Like, if, if you're at a cocktail party, are you always going to gravitate towards talking about books? Or when you get in a social situation, would you rather talk about anything else but writing for a change? No, I, I love to talk about books and I love teaching writing. I teach twice a year and it's something that. I feel like I get my mojo back when I'm teaching and I come out of class even more fired up than my students. I don't like talking about books on social media that much because I don't want to put anybody down ever. But it's more fun to talk about the books that don't work. Like when a book <laughs> is fantastic, like, okay, if you wanted to ask me, like, I am crazy about the book, The Blinds by Adam Sternberg that's coming out in about a month. So that's a fun one to talk about, but you can't even talk about it that much because of spoilers and if people haven't read it, but I'm really interested in things that fail and why they fail. And that's not a conversation you can have in too public a forum. Yeah, I like to talk about all this stuff all the time. Okay, so uh, you've been a published author for 20 years now. We're guessing mm -hmm. that, that there isn't possibly a question we could ask that you haven't been asked before, but Eric really wanted to give it a try. So okay. I'm gonna let him ask the question. All right, if you had to pick another author as your tag team wrestling partner, who would it be? Oh, there's so many good choices. <laughs> okay. I'm glad uh, that you just jumped right in. This was, this oh, yeah. was as if the, we failed. You have been asked this before. No, I haven't been asked this before, but I have two different, very different answers. My first one would be Megan Abbott, because she's small and wiry. And so I feel between my tall, broad-shouldered hulkingness, she'd get in there and she could, you know, do things to people's knees. And she, you fights, know, she do, fights dirty. Come on, we all know that. We've been talking about a cage match over the McCavity and some other. So anyway, <laughs> but the opposite of Megan in that he's, I think he's almost six foot five. A wonderful writer named Chris Mooney from Boston, and going way back to BoucherCon in two thousand and three. Chris and I were part of a large group of people sitting in a bar and we were just being pestered by this old man from Boston. It just this nasty old man. He was lascivious and 
And that was the night that Chris Mooney turned into what I've since called my VoucherCon husband. You know, and at one point I, I basically turned to the old man from Boston and said, you know, if you touch me one more time, my husband here is going to kick your ass. And so Chris would be a really good wrestling partner too. So it depends on sort of the nature of it, but Megan first choice, Chris Mooney number two. We'll look forward to that match. And you would obviously pick me, right, Eric? Of course, yeah. Well, you're, well, you're my Bouchercon husband. Oh, right. That's what I meant. <laughs> well, another good show, Steve. What have we learned? Brett Battles reminded us that there's a pill for just about everything. Richard Lang taught us that Star Trek can keep you out of a life of crime. And Laura Lippman taught us it's more fun to talk about a bad book than a good book. Well, that does it for this episode. We'd like to thank all of our guests and contributors for joining us and to our sponsor, the Right Now Conference. And special thanks to anyone who's left a review for the show on iTunes. You know, reviews and subscribers matter to get the show and our guests out in front of more listeners. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter. And don't forget to rate us in the iTunes store or on Stitcher and subscribe if you like what you hear. This show is produced and edited by Eric Beatner and S.W. Loudon. As always, you can find out more about Steve's books at swloudon.com. And you can find out about Eric's books at ericbeatner.com. Join us again on Writer Types. Thanks for listening. <laughs>